isn't it? Watching the culture come unhinged. Watching society unravel before our very eyes. It's not entertaining at all. It's very troubling to watch a culture eating itself to death and tottering to its own grave. I mean, it's one thing to read about civilizations of the past with a sense of detachment and, and analyze how it is, how, where they went wrong, and how it is that they came unraveled, but it is something completely different to watch that happen from the inside out, isn't it? What I'm saying is this, what we see unfolding in America, this is what it looks like when a nation turns from God. And I was really hesitant to even say it that way. I was really, really hesitant to put it in those terms. Why? Because of fear of propagating bad theology. What I mean is America is not the promised land. We are not God's country. This is not a Christian nation. America is not the new Israel or the people of God. We need to get away from any American patriotism equals Christianity kind of nonsense that is helpful to no one. And yet at the same time, at the same time, at one time or another, America did have in place general biblical principles and moral guidelines to guide the moral and civic trajectory of the country, right? Again, that doesn't mean that all of America's founders were true Christians. They, they were not. That's not true. But there were general biblical principles and moral convictions that shaped and governed the creation of America's foundation. And the thing about those principles is they work. Even when implemented and followed and obeyed by unbelievers, they don't warrant, they don't merit any kind of favor with God at all whatsoever. But that does produce a kind of stability and prosperity that as a whole creates a culture of justice and kindness. To that we have been witnesses. However, however, when God or absolute truth becomes unnecessary, the result is catastrophic damage that leaves cultures volatile, subject to confusion, and liable to collapse. I mean, if God doesn't matter or exist, who's to say what's right or wrong? If God doesn't matter or exist, who says abortion is bad? If God doesn't matter or exist, who says homosexuality is sinful? Who says that? If God doesn't matter or exist, who says mutilating children to change their gender is evil? Who says that? How do we know that? Do you see? When God and truth becomes an unnecessary hypothesis, all hell begins to break loose, and that is exactly what we see transpiring before our very eyes. Is it? Here's my point. What it feels like in America in our day is kind of how it felt like in Judah in Isaiah's day. It was a nation on the verge of collapse, 
And it was that precisely because Yahweh and his word had become an unnecessary hypothesis. It was a nation slowly strangled in the noose of drifting from God. And this morning, Isaiah reveals to his people what was the inevitable outcome of that drifting. And the outcome, what God had promised his people, should they reject his covenant and break the contract, which they had done, was the fear of all fears and the terror of all terrors, namely invasion, destruction, slavery, and exile. That's what God had promised, and that's exactly what chapter 3 predicts, and that's precisely what would happen to the nation. It's not a pretty picture. And I want you to picture this morning starving Jews with shaven heads and striped pajamas. I want you to smell the stench of death and see the hollowed eyes and vacant looks of a people in despair. I want you to imagine the concentration camp-like conditions of a people taken captive because that is exactly what Isaiah portrays what would happen to Judah and 120 years after he wrote this chapter, that is exactly what happened. Now, I know this is bleak. Happy New Year. I know this is bleak and it is bleak, but you'll notice, you'll notice the title of the sermon very carefully chosen from gulags to glory. The desolation, then, then deliverance of the people of Judah. That's very important because you see, Isaiah gives us the gulags in chapter 3, but the glory in chapter 4. We get the terrors of exile in chapter 3, but the beauty of the kingdom in chapter 4. There's the punishment they would experience in chapter 3, but the paradise to come in chapter 4. And you see, the point of all this was to awaken apostate Judah and bring them to their knees in repentance. Here's what awaits you in chapter 3 if you don't repent. Here's what you get to enjoy in chapter 4 if you do. But let me just say this, and this is really my, my burden this morning, is that the whole reason why Judah fell apart as a nation and went into exile is precisely because decades before this, listen carefully, decades before this, entire families and individuals drifted from the word of God. I'm serious. The collapse of churches, cultures, and even whole societies like America, like Judah, begins in the home, in the family, and with individuals who after a while just don't see the word of God as really that big of a deal anymore. So you see, I have a family burden this morning, a deep concern for individual priorities that you choose for your lives because that was exactly Isaiah's concern for his people's lives. And so let's go to the text this morning. I want you to see five spiritual priorities. Five spiritual priorities that protect the family and the church as a godless culture plummets into ruin. Five spiritual priorities priorities to protect the family and the church as a godless culture plummets into ruin. Before we see that, though, let's look at the vision of Isaiah, which unfolds in three parts. It's two parts gory, one part glory. So let's begin first with the removal of corrupt leaders. The removal of corrupt leaders, verses 1 through 15. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in Isaiah. I hope you remember what chapter 2 is. 
Chapter 2 portrays a global war of God waged against the arrogant. That the goal of God in history is to crush the suicidal pride of man and to exalt his glory for the gladness of his people. That's chapter 2. And I believe that future war of God waged against the proud, I believe what the Bible calls the tribulation. It is real. It is global. And it's coming in the future. In chapter 3, however, get this, Isaiah rewinds the video just a little bit. It's still in the future. What Isaiah portrays in chapter 3 is still to come in the future from Isaiah's perspective, from his people's perspective, and what he pictures is nothing less than the collapse of the entire nation. Specifically, what it is is the invasion of Babylon. And this sneak peek of the coming destruction, get this, he begins with the leadership. He begins with the leadership in chapter 3 because in that day, if you got invaded and conquered by an enemy, the first thing they would do is put the leaders in chains, take them as prisoners, and then leave the country in chaos and despair, which is exactly what we see in verses 1 through 4. Look at the text. For behold, the Lord Yahweh of hosts is removing from Jerusalem and from Judah the supply and support, all of the supply of bread and all of the supply of water, the warrior and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder, literally it says the captain of fifties, the nobility, the counselor, the wise man, the sorcerer, and the skilled enchanter, and I will make youths, boys, to be their princes and capricious children will rule over them. Now, it's a little cryptic, but you can tell. Something's not right here. This is not a happy prediction. There's nothing positive about this at all, nothing at all. And at all, you see, begins with the name of God in verse 1, which, to be honest, is a little scary, because the last time God called himself Adon Yahweh Tsevaot, the Lord Yahweh of hosts, back in chapter 1, verse 24, he predicted the destruction of the entire country. And it's the same tune here. The Lord means the sovereign one. Yahweh is the sacred covenant name of God, and hosts are the angelic armies that do his bidding. And so what this is, is God is about to intervene and disrupt their lives in a major catastrophic way. What? What is he about to do? Verse 1, the Lord will remove from Jerusalem and from Judah the support and the supply, all of the supply of bread and all of the supply of water. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound, does the removal of food and water, does that sound like famine to you? That's exactly what it is. And notice it's Yahweh who is going to do it. There was a third world poverty level famine coming to Judah, which would be really jarring news considering the fact that they were in the best economic shape as a country that they had been in centuries. There's no way this is going to happen to us. Oh, it's going to happen, all right. And it did happen. The thing about famines, however, in that day is that they were brought about by one of several different ways. Sometimes droughts, sometimes floods, locust, infesta locust infestations, plant diseases, and also by war. The invasion of an enemy. 
And the effects of that war, you see it in verses 2 and 3. And notice that Isaiah moves from food shortages to leadership shortages. Look at the text. Not only would Yahweh remove the food and water supply, but he would also remove the warrior and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50s and the nobility, the, the counselor and the wise man and the sorcerer and the, and the skilled enchanter. What is this? This is a list, a comprehensive list of all the kinds of leadership that existed in Judah in that day, some of whom God appointed and approved, some of whom God condemned, but either way, either way, they would be captured or they would be murdered. And that verb remove in verse one is still the main verb here. God is going to remove these leaders from the land of Judah, and you see the list. Soldiers and warriors, those called to protect the country from invaders and enemies, they're gone. Judges, civic leaders who provide leadership and settle disputes, they're gone. Prophets who received messages from God and proclaim the word of Yahweh, they're gone. And then get a load of this, diviners, sorcerers, soothsayers, people condemned by Yahweh, they're gone. Elders, spiritual leaders, people who were supposed to care for the souls of their tribes and their clans, they're gone. Captains and nobility and counselors and wise men of the country entrusted with spiritual leadership and solving social issues, they're gone. And then so sad, into verse 3, magicians or sorcerers and skilled enchanters. What were people of Judah doing with these people in their land? Deuteronomy 13 was clear. These people were to be driven out, condemned by Yahweh, but highly respected by the people of Judah. They're gone. They're all gone. Or at least they were going to be. Because in a future act of judgment, Yahweh would remove these leaders like cleaning out old junk from an attic. And what that would do would send the entire nation into chaos and pandemonium. And here's the thing about these leaders, these leaders that Isaiah describes, they weren't godly by any stretch of the imagination, but they were functional. Although wicked and super corrupt, they, they did provide some level of order and economic stability. But you see, the thing of it is, if you all of a sudden remove all the leaders in an act of judgment, and if you remove them all at once, what happens? It creates a black hole of leadership to be filled by people even more evil and unqualified than the ones who were there before, which is what we see in verses 4 through 7. Yahweh would, rem Yahweh would remove all the leaders, verse 4, and he says, and I will make youths, boys, to be their princes. And capricious children will rule over them. And the people says they will oppress one another, literally a man against a man and a man against his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, the dishonorable against the honorable. For a man will lay hold of his brother in the house of his father and say, look, a jacket. Come, you shall be our leader. And let this heap of ruins be under your hand. And he will lift up his voice in that day, saying, I will not be your healer. In my house there is no bread. In my house there is no jacket. You shall not appoint me ruler of the people. And you see it, don't you? Absolute chaos is coming to the people. And Isaiah is about to show us that this is, in fact, because of invasion and war. Look at verse 4. 
whatever competent, stable rulers there were before will be removed and replaced by teenagers and capricious children. I mean, this could be adults who act like children, or it could be actual children. Both could be the case. Verse 5 portrays the inevitable oppression and hostility that comes when you have weak and useless leaders. When the leadership moves out, the scumbags move in. Think Seattle, think San Francisco, think Kabul and Afghanistan. This is absolute chaos. Then look at verses 6 and 7. Things are going to get so bad and people will be so desperate for anybody to lead them that the only qualification you need to lead the people is a jacket. Look what Isaiah portrays. A man will lay hold of his brother in the house of his father. Look, a jacket. Come, you shall be our leader. And let this heap of ruins be under your hand. And he will lift up his voice in that day and say, I will not be your healer. In my house there is no bread, there is no jacket. Do not appoint me leader over the people. And you notice the people, not only are they so panicked for leadership that anyone who has a coat is qualified to lead them, but you also notice the conditions over which they are called to lead. The man says to the man with the jacket who says he doesn't have a jacket, and he says, come, you shall be our leader. And he says, he says let this heap of ruins be under your hand. The country, you see, is going to be in absolute shambles. And it's going to be so bad that chapter 1, verse 9 says that it would resemble Sodom and Gomorrah. And the man with the coat says in reply, don't make me do this. Don't make me do this. I can't be your healer. I can't help you. I can't fix you. Don't make me ruler over this people. And what? What will be the scenario that will bring about this tragic situation? Your, I know your English Bibles put this in past tense, but Isaiah wants us to see that this is a future action. Look at verse 8. Why is this going to happen? For Jerusalem will stumble and Judah will fall. I can only describe one thing. The invasion and destruction by a foreign army. And why? What reason? Why is this going to happen? Look at verses 8 and 9. For their words and their deeds are against Yahweh. They rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their face bears witness against them. They declare their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their souls, for they bring evil upon themselves. I mean, this was bad. This was really, really bad. Because you understand, Israel had one job. One job. All 613 commands in the Torah could be summarized in this way. Love Yahweh as your treasure. Love your fellow Israelites. And when you fail to do that, bring a sacrificial lamb at the temple with tears in your eyes. That's it. Instead of that, they sinned against Yahweh with bold-faced, hostile defiance. They slept around, as it were, with false gods. They didn't give a rip that God could see them. You notice in verse 9, they're compared for the second time in the book to the people of Sodom, the most wicked people in the history of their country. God's people lost their ability to blush they no longer felt shame or regret, let alone repentance. I mean, welcome to 21st century America. 
Their consciences were seared. Their minds were polluted. They lost all sense of the holiness and, and majesty of the living God, which is a frightening testimony to the power of sin. Isn't it? The way it dulls the soul, blinds the eyes, and poisons the mind. Because I'm concerned... I'm concerned that many professing Christians dabble in sin and toy with sin and tolerate sin, not understanding that the same sin that thrills the heart is the same sin that hardens the heart. I'm concerned for many in the church that they underestimate the power of sin and they overestimate their power to resist sin. I'm not persuaded that many Christians understand that the nature of sin is that it's not just naughty, but that it numbs the soul and bludgeons the conscience so that after a while, you neither realize nor care just how far it is you have drifted from God. So the loaded question of the morning is, are you dabbling? Are you toying? Are you tolerating Secret sins, little sins behind the scenes. Because you understand that the science of sin, that there are no sin is little in God's sight and no sin stays little for very long. Because you understand the nature of sin is that it is by its very nature viral. It is pathological. It is bacterial. It grows and spreads and eventually it consumes and destroys without the disinfecting power of God's word. Judah is proof. The end of verse 9 pronounces a woe and warning about the great evil that they had brought upon themselves. One of the forms of which, get this, one of the forms about the evil they had brought would be their ungodly leaders replaced by leaders who were even more ungodly. Isn't that interesting? That the judgment of God upon a nation is to give them the leaders they want and the leaders they deserve. That hits close to home, doesn't it? Verses 10 and 11, however, however faint it may be, is a tiny little glimmer and flicker of hope as God assures the righteous in Judah that it would go well for them. There were righteous people in Judah. There weren't many, but there were some. And God reassures the righteous minority that they will eat the fruit of their ways. And what a glorious, delicious way to talk about reward, isn't it? Those who pursue Yahweh and his glory and his supremacy and who seek to live their lives for the fame of his name, independence upon his grace, Yahweh will not forget them. They, you, will eat the fruit of your ways. So what this is, is an, a call and an encouragement to you to persevere in holiness and faith, knowing that you will eat the fruit of their ways. Ultimately, you will have a seat at the banquet of Yahweh, chapter 25, verse 6. God will not forget, and unfortunately, at the exact same time, verse 11, God will not forget the wicked either, will he? Those who hedge their bets and reject God's Messiah will be treated as their own sins deserve. It doesn't have to go down that way. 
It doesn't have to be that way. God has provided a way of escape in the form of a sin-bearing Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who reject that Savior must bear their own sins forever and ever and ever. And there will be no escape. The question is, have you yielded to this Savior this morning? Do you know him? Have you trusted in him? Because the judgment upon these godless leaders is exactly what verses 12 through 15 describe. Look at verse 12. I mean, this place is a train wreck, man. Everything was backwards in Judah's leadership. Verse 12, he says, Oh, my people, those who oppress them are little children. Literally nursing babies is the word. Suckling infants. The leaders of Judah were like little baby tyrants who extorted and robbed their people and sucked them dry to feed their own appetites. Verse 15 says that the leaders crushed God's people and grinded the faces of poor people into the ground. Verse 12, Isaiah says that women rule over them. That's not a slam against women, but it is a slam against power-hungry women who control their weak husbands. Oh, my people, he says, verse 12, those who lead you, lead you astray, and they confuse the path of your ways. I mean, don't get me wrong. These leaders were savvy. They were capable. They were competent. They were clever. But they were also brutal and harsh and greedy and oppressive. And the worst crime of all is they didn't teach their people the ways of Yahweh. That's why verse 13 says that Yahweh stands to contend with his people. Verse 14, Yahweh will come with judgment against the elders of his people and against his princes, which is precisely what he did 120 years after this when he sent the Babylonian hordes to Jerusalem and they simply leveled the city to the ground. question is, what do we do with all this? What is the take home? What am I supposed to do with this? What's the point of this? Don't be these kinds of leaders. Is that the point? Well, that's true, of course. Don't be those kinds of leaders. But there is a deeper issue that deserves our sober reflection this morning. And the issue is the unraveling of a nation begins in the home. And specifically with the fathers. You see, lurking beneath the concentration camp-like conditions predicted for the people are the deepers in concerns and issues that led to those conditions, namely the failure of individuals and families to love Yahweh and to make his word supreme and central in their hearts and in their homes. I mean, the chain reaction is chilling, isn't it? Think about how this works. The failure of fathers in Judah to lead their children and families and to teach them the law of Yahweh led not just to godless children, but to godless adults, some of whom became godless leaders to lead a godless people. Everybody's guilty. Everybody's responsible. We are not Judah. This is not God's country. We are not God's chosen people, America. America is not God's chosen people, but the principle here is powerful and hauntingly relevant. 
isn't it? We delay the destruction of our nation when we are busy with the work of making disciples. And where that begins, of course, is in the home and in the church. And when you have your own soul personally infatuated with God through his word. That brings us next to the ruin of proud women. The ruin of proud women. First we see the removal of corrupt leaders. Now we see the ruin of proud women. 316 through chapter 4, verse 1. And, you know, I still remember them. The faces. The faces of the Jewish women whose heads had been freshly shaved, wearing striped pajamas, posing in a mugshot photo for kind of Nazi directory. I'm talking about Auschwitz concentration camp that I had the opportunity to visit one time. And every time I read Isaiah chapter 3, I think about the women in those photos. And I think of their lives and what they were like before the Nazis invaded. They wore dresses and ate at restaurants and raised their kids and listened to records and wore perfume and jewelry and went dancing, I suppose, and did all the things that people in that day did. And then to have all of it all of a sudden taken away at once and find themselves crammed in a cattle car headed to the gulags. A version of that is what we see in chapter 3. And although this is not going to be easy to see, it's not going to be easy to hear, it's not going to be easy to preach, it must be seen and heard and preached because believe it or not, there is something for us here. Yahweh now turns from the leaders of Judah to the women of Judah and look what he predicts will happen in the future, verses 16 and 17. And Yahweh said, because the daughters of Zion exalt themselves and walk with outstretched necks and seductive eyes, Going along, skipping along, they go and they jingle with their feet. I'll tell you what that means in a moment. The Lord will afflict literally the scalps of the daughters of Zion. And Yahweh, I know your version might say it differently, but what it says is Yahweh will make their foreheads bald. You can tell. Something's not right here. There is a society-wide spiritual problem with the women in the culture. And although God is picking on the women here, he doesn't only pick on the women, right? But what the situation with the women was so bad that they need to be included here in Isaiah's prophecy. And what was the issue exactly? What was the issue? Multiple issues. And you can see them in the text. Look at verse 16. The daughters of Zion exalt themselves and they walk with outstretched necks. In other words, pride. Vanity and pride. To have an outstretched neck was an ancient Near Eastern way to describe the demeanor you have when you feel more sophisticated and important than other people. There was widespread pretense and conceit in this wealthy, affluent culture. The wives and the moms of Judah had lost their way in the world. Instead of prizing Yahweh as their highest treasure and teaching their children to do the same, they got lost in the maze of their own importance and opulence. They were the opposite of Proverbs 31.30. Charm, 31.30.31. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears Yahweh, she will be praised. They didn't want that. They didn't want any of that. 
That was boring and passe and old-fashioned. And these women, they were powerful and progressive and free and modern. Free from the shackles of stuffy patriarchal religion. And not only were they vain and narcissistic, they were flirtatious and immoral. Verse 16 says that they walked with seductive eyes. And the Hebrews really vivid here. They put jingling jewelry around their ankles and then walked with short little hops. It literally says they skipped along to make the jewelry jingle and get attention, which was a Hebrew way to say that they strutted their stuff. The issue then is pride, self-important narcissism and pride, too distracted by their own worth and beauty to enjoy the worth and beauty of their God. And therefore, Isaiah predicts in verse 17, the Lord will afflict the scalps of the daughters of Zion, and Yahweh will make their foreheads bald. In other words, someone is going to come and rip out their hair, which evokes the picture, does it not, of enemy soldiers invading, grabbing women by their hair, and dragging them out of their homes. That's what this is. That's what this is, and that's what would happen in 586 B.C. when Babylon stormed the gates and took the people captive. And I want you to picture again the women before the Holocaust. Their well-done hair, their dresses, their scarves, their high-heeled shoes, their leather belts, their fancy purses, pearls around their necks, the smell of perfume as they walk by on the sidewalk running their errands. And then I want you to picture those same women inside the camps. Because that's the exact picture that Isaiah gives us in verses 18 through 23. Isaiah lists all the luxuries and fineries and accessories and designer extravagances to which the women of that day clung as their identity. And verse 18 simply says that in that day the Lord would remove them. Same exact word that he uses in verse 1 to describe the removal of leaders. Yahweh would remove all this. And notice that it says it would happen in that day, which is code, you understand, for prophecy. This is prediction. This is going to happen. And you know, it did happen. And in verses 18 through 23, you see the items stripped, stolen. And I think the real point is now considered worthless because what is even the point of fancy perfume when headed to the gas chamber? In that day, verse 18, ankle bracelets, hair bands, crescent ornaments, necklaces, they're gone. Verse 19, earrings, bracelets, veils for the hair, they're gone. Verse 20, headdresses, literally diadems, delicate crowns placed in the hair to look elegant and refined, they're gone. Ankle chains, sashes, designer belts used to, I suppose, accessorize and color coordinate. Is that what we do with belts? I don't know, but they're gone. Perfume bottles, literally in the Hebrew, houses of the soul and amulets, they're gone. All of it left behind and now considered worthless in the interest of self-preservation. The list goes on in verse 21. Rings and earrings, fancy gowns, elegant overcoats, mantles, wraps, and shawls. Verse 22, purses. They had purses in that day. Verse 23, hand mirrors, fine linen garments that you sleep in, turbans. In the end of verse 23, I looked this up. It's the ancient equivalent to a sundress in 
all of it, all of it is gone. It's all gone. Or at least it's going to be. The scene culminates in verse 24 with a grim and ugly summary, punctuated five times by the Hebrew word tachat instead. Look what Isaiah says. Instead of the smell of perfume, there will be the stench of decay. Think of the smells in the cattle car headed to Auschwitz. Instead of a belt, he says, a fancy designer belt. Instead of that, you've got a crude rope which holds your potato sack in place so that it doesn't expose your nakedness. Instead of hair styled to perfection, it'll be ripped out and bald. Instead of fine garments and gowns for parties, they would have to cover themselves with crude potato sacks and their rope. And finally, Isaiah says, literally, it, the Hebrew says, there would be scars instead of beauty, and it rhymes in the Hebrew. Ki tachat yofi, scars instead of beauty. The question is why? Under what circumstances would these once fine, proud, affluent, and elegant ladies be stripped of everything they own and forced to live like animals in the gulags and the slums? And finally, in verses 25 through 26, Isaiah gives a clear answer as to what would happen. Look at the text. Your men will fall by the sword. And your warriors in war, literally the war, and its gates, that is Jerusalem's gates, will lament and mourn. And it, the city, will stand desolate or empty in the land. In other words, invasion and war and destruction and captivity, which is exactly what Jeremiah portrays a hundred years later in Lamentations chapter 1. Listen for the similarities. How lonely sits the city that was once full of people, he says. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and harsh servitude. The roads of Zion are in mourning, her gates are desolate, her priests are groaning, her virgins are afflicted, and she herself is bitter. Why? For Yahweh has caused her grief because of her iniquities. And her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. What Isaiah, what Jeremiah rather, saw with his very own eyes a century later is exactly what Isaiah is predicting here. The nightmare of Babylon and the desolation of Jerusalem. And then the scene actually ends in chapter 4, verse 1. You, you might remember that in Germany after World War II, there were so few men left. There weren't enough men for the women to marry. And it's the situation here with most of the men dead or in captivity. The situation is tragic and crushing. In a situation like that, there would be very few men to marry. So what chapter 4 verse 1 pictures is seven desperate women begging one man to marry them all. So that they didn't wind up hopeless and homeless in the streets. And that's the scene. That's the end. That's the vision. That was what was to come. And that's hard to hear. 
And that's hard to picture, and that's hard to preach. And at first, it seems really, really hard to find any relevant application of that to our lives, right? And yet the point here is not, is not dresses are bad, purses are evil, perfume and jewelry is vain. I mean, although these women were proud and materialistic, materialism is not even actually the point of the text at all. The point is the unraveling of a nation begins in the home. The point is lukewarm fathers raise godless daughters who marry godless husbands who raise godless children and the ripple effects of that are a nation undone and destroyed from the inside out. The point here is the generational neglect of the Torah, of the word of God in their lives. What led, get this now, what led to the widespread secularization and Canaanization and paganation and, and ultimately to the Babylonian gulags was the failure of individuals and families and especially the fathers to teach their children to love the scriptures. What this was, you understand, was the slow death of a nation by spiritual suffocation, the fresh oxygen of God's word slowly sucked out, and the inhaling of the carbon dioxide of idolatry and lies. This text was, you understand, a wake-up call, right? It's a wake-up call, a, a prophetic glimpse of, of the horrors to come in the hopes that at least some of God's apostate people would fall to their knees in repentance. And you have to understand, the, the application to our lives here today is not forced Christianization of the culture. It's not that. The point is not to raise our kids to serve in politics. That can happen, and that's fine. But that's not the point. Our hope is not ultimately in a candidate or conservatism or the Supreme Court, but in the power of the word of God and the faithfulness to proclaim it to the people in our lives, beginning with our own children. Christ does not promise or call us to change America, but we have the promise that the word of God is powerful and radically changes people's lives. And at the end, we're going to see from Deuteronomy 6 how that looks in our lives and in our homes. But let's look at the final glimpse of the future. Like I said, this is two parts gory, one part glory. That brings us finally to the restoration of a future remnant. The restoration of a future remnant, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Finally, much needed good news. <laughs> you know, I'm not much of a gardener, which probably comes as a surprise to none of you. But thanks to the prophet Isaiah, I am a theological botanist. I'm a theological botanist. What do I mean? What I mean is Isaiah has a thing for trees. A dozen times he uses trees as analogies for really deep, profound spiritual realities. He is the horticultural prophet of the Old Testament. And one of the botanical pictures he uses is even for the Messiah himself, the great redeemer and deliverer to come, who we know to be Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, get this, he calls the Messiah the stem and the root of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. 
Chapter 53, he calls him the green shoot that sprouts out of dry ground. And here in chapter 4, this prophetic picture of the glory to come at the end of the age, he enigmatically and mysteriously refers to the Messiah to come as a branch. A branch who would be glorious and beautiful and would make all things be the way they ought to be. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Let's read the whole thing. It's a bit cryptic, but you can tell this is really, really good news about what God has planned for the end of the age. Isaiah says, in that day, and there it is again, code for prophecy. Something to come in the future. In that day, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and the splendor for the survivors of Israel. And it will be the one left over in Zion. And the one who remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who was registered for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord washes the dung, the excrement off of the daughters of Zion, and when he purges the blood from Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of justice and by the spirit of burning, and Yahweh will create over all of the abode of the, of the mountain of Zion and over all of the assembly a cloud and smoke by day and brightness of fire for a flame by night for over all of the glory will be a canopy and there will be a shelter for the shade of the day from the heat and a refuge and protection from the storm and from the rain you could tell whatever that is and whatever that means you could see the tone has changed the gulags have given way to glory the terrors of exile have given way to the beauty of the kingdom. There's all the punishment that they would and did experience in chapter 3, but chapter 4, all of a sudden, short and tiny though it may be, is the paradise to come at the end of the age. This is still future. It has not happened yet, but it will happen. Let's walk through the text. Let's take it in four quick parts. First, let's see the reign of the Messiah. The reign of the Messiah, verse 2. In that day, the branch of Yahweh will be glorious and beautiful. And there it is. There he is. The branch of Yahweh, the Messiah. And maybe you think, well, how do we even know that's the Messiah? How do we know that's a person at all? Well, if this is a literal branch on a literal tree, that's kind of an odd thing to get excited about. And so... Clearly, what this is must be representative of something else, of somebody else. And you see, what this is here, this branch thing, is a profound example of what a good theologian Isaiah was. You know why? Because get this. Where the picture of branch comes from is all the way back from 2 Samuel chapter 23, where the verb form of that word branch is used in a prophecy to predict the future of the Davidic line. Does that make sense? You remember that God promised a king to come from the descendants of David, and this branch picture is a subtle allusion to the prophecy of the Davidic king to come in the future, and branch is such a fitting analogy to describe the Messiah, isn't it? Because it pictures growth 
and newness and restoration and renewal. Picture a scorched and blackened earth and a little green shoot coming out of the ground, growing into a great tree, bringing restoration and paradise to earth. That's the picture. And I'll have you know that Jeremiah chapter 23 and 33 and Zechariah chapter 3 both use branch as a way to describe the Messiah. And here you see that Isaiah says that the branch would be beautiful and glorious. Listen to what he says in chapter 11 about the Messiah to come. Exact same language. This is chapter 11, verse 1. Don't need to turn there. Listen to what he says. In that day, there it is again, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse, will stand as a banner for the peoples, and the nations will seek him, and his resting place will be, wait for it, glorious. The Messiah would come, and he did come, and mark my words, he will come again. But second, we see the return of the remnant. The return of the remnant, look again at verse 2. In that day, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and the splendor for the survivors of Israel. The survivors of Israel, what is that? What does that even mean? It means there was a future for God's people. Do you hear this? God was not done, is not done with his people. Every single covenant guarantee that God ever made to his people Israel will be fully and finally fulfilled in the future and that is the guarantee that he will fulfill all of his promises to us what did God guarantee the people of Israel what did he, what did he promise to give them not just a land not just a kingdom but supernatural transformation of their souls from the inside out which brings us to the redemption of Israel the redemption of Israel, look at verses 3 and 4. And it shall be the one who remains in Zion, and the one left over in Jerusalem, note this, will be called holy. Everyone registered for life in Jerusalem when the Lord washes the dung off the daughters of Zion, and when he purges the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of justice and by the spirit of burning. Do you see it? Total reversal. Shocking 180 degree difference from chapter 3, isn't it? This is a future remnant and generation of literal Jews who will get saved and be the recipients of all the covenant promises of Yahweh. Isaiah says in verse 3 that finally they will be called Kadosh, holy. Finally. Finally, they will be the holy people that God called them to be. Finally, they will fulfill their destiny to be a holy people, and they will be holy because verse 4 says, the Lord will wash the dung off the daughters of Zion and purge the blood of Jerusalem from her midst. You see the connection to chapter 3, don't you? The daughters of Zion one day will be forgiven and purified and cleansed brings us finally in this prophetic appetizer forth to the restoration of creation. The restoration of creation. Look at verses 5 and 6. And Yahweh will create 
Over all the abode of the mountain of Zion and over all of the assembly, a cloud and smoke by day and brightness of a fire for a flame by night, for over all of the glory will be a canopy, and there will be a shade, a shelter for the shade by day from the heat, and a refuge and protection from the storm and from the rain. Do you see what we have here? Believe it or not, Isaiah is describing the ecological conditions of the kingdom of the branch. Yahweh will create a cloud by day, a flame of fire by night, which kind of sounds like the wilderness wanderings, does it not? But they won't be in the wilderness, they'll be in the city. There'll be a covering and a shelter from Jerusalem, over Jerusalem, to protect from the sun and the heat and the storm and the rain. And you think, what is this? What on earth are we looking at? And that's just the thing. That's exactly what you're looking at. You're looking at earth. This is earth. This is the planet, not as it exists in its current condition, but as it will exist in its future condition under the kingdom, under the reign of the Messiah. I think what we're seeing here, I kid you not, is a climate-controlled, air-conditioned paradise over the land. And as we see from Isaiah 11 and dozens of other passages, this isn't just Israel, it is the whole planet, a global paradise. And if you wanna take that as symbolic, and metaphorical of something else, that's your right to do that. But you have to explain to me what all those other passages predicting a global Eden to come in the future mean. And you have to explain to me why Revelation 7 describes the future kingdom of the Lamb whose citizens no longer hunger or thirst, nor does the sun beat down on them. You see, what this is, is the reverse of the curse, the breaking of the spell, the return to Eden for those who belong to Jesus Christ. This is your happily ever after it's in writing. You have it in writing. This is what's to come. And that's it. That's the scene. That's the vision. That's the end. And yet I owe you, don't I? I owe you, owe you what I promised, which is very quickly, and I mean that very quickly, five spiritual priorities to protect the family. Don't look at the clock. Shame on you. I'm going to break that thing. And plus, it's like 20 minutes fast, okay? So that's going to be my joke every Sunday. Very quickly, five spiritual priorities to protect the family and the church as a godless culture plummets into ruin, and they're all found in Deuteronomy 6. And actually, I want you to turn there. I want you to look at Deuteronomy 6. Because there is a way to not plummet with the culture into ruin. There is a way to not become unraveled into destruction. There is a way to not follow the script to protect our churches and our families. And Isaiah 6 gives us the blueprints, the template, the way, the method, the path. Deuteronomy 6. Because again, the unraveling of a nation begins in the home, and here is a way to not let that happen. Number one, number one, you must revere Yahweh exclusively. You must revere Yahweh exclusively. Look at verse 4. Moses says, Hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. What is that? That doesn't merely mean that there's only one God, although that's true. 
No, that word one there is a term of dignity and rank and supremacy. The point is he's not only one, he is the only one for you. So the question is, do you revere Yahweh? That's the foundation of the whole thing. Number two. Number two, you must love Yahweh supremely. You must love Yahweh supremely. Look at verse five. Moses says, and you shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. This is how it happens. This is how our families do not come unraveled when we love Yahweh as our supreme delight and treasure above all things. Do you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might? Do you love Yahweh? How do you do that? What does that look like? Number three, you must meditate on God's word habitually. You must meditate on God's word habitually. Look at verse six. And these words, Moses says, which I am commanding you this day shall be al levavacha, on your heart. These words will be on your heart, on your heart. If something is on your heart, you are thinking about that. You are contemplating that. You are pondering that. You are consumed with that. And I want you and God wants you to be consumed with his word. That's how we not become unraveled. Number four. Number four, you must disciple your children incessantly. You must disciple your children incessantly. Verse seven. Moses says, and you shall teach them, that is these words, you shall teach these words to your sons to your children, and you shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you go along the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. What is that? That's discipleship. That, that's what we call redemptive relationships. And it all begins in the home with our own kids. And if you don't have your own kids, that's okay. That's no strike against you. Why don't you come and help disciple my kids? I'm serious. I, I would love for you to pour into my kids and pray for them. And, and other parents would love for you to, to assist them in the disciple-making venture, the most important ministry of our lives. That's a profound ministry, and then that brings us finally number five. Number five, you must be reminded of God's word continually, and then we're done. You must be reminded of God's word continually, verses eight and nine. And you shall bind these words as signs on your hand, and they shall be as frontals between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The point is, your life is to be graffitied with the word of God. Not literally, necessarily, but you must do whatever it takes to make this word have the supreme and central place in your life and in your affections because when our lives and our churches and our homes are held intact by God's word, we will not unravel like the culture that surrounds us.
Let's pray. Oh Lord, I consider the thought that struck me this week that no wedding has ever had chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 3 quoted. Many of us, Lord, we didn't know this chapter existed before this morning or before this past couple weeks as, as, as I studied. I knew it was there, but I didn't know it was there. We're glad it's there, oh Lord. It is sobering, it is weighty, it is heavy. And Lord, we are grateful for Christ and his finished work in our, in our place and on our behalf. And we understand the reason why we're not in exile now, why we're not in hell right now is because of Christ, which you have accomplished in our place. And we're so grateful for that. And grateful doesn't even begin to describe it, Lord. And, and we are grateful for the glory that we see in chapter 4. And we want that. We want to be in the kingdom so badly. We are done. We are ready to be done with the planet in its current condition. We are tired of bad news all day, every day. We are tired of lies and agendas. We are tired of all that. And yet you have us here for a mission. And I pray that chapters 3 and 4 of Isaiah would equip us, prepare us, make us more ready for that mission with courage and compassion and boldness and love. And it's in the mighty name of Christ we pray. Amen.